In this week's episode, we were delighted to speak with Jason Collins, a behavioural and data scientist. Jason has led PwC Australia's behavioural economics practice and was the data science lead for Australia's corporate markets and financial services regulator. He has also worked as a lawyer and economic policy advisor. Jason holds a PhD from the University of Western Australia, combining economics and evolutionary biology, and blogs at jasoncollins.blog. We spoke about why behavioural economics has come under some recent criticism and about evolutionary biology and signalling. We hope you enjoy the episode. It would be really interesting to talk a bit more about, you know, why why you think it's come under recent criticism, behavioural economics, and, you know, is it justified? And then I guess the second part of, you know, what, what next therefore, you know, how can the field restore its reputation? Um, sure. So... I suppose you'd say that behavioural economics has actually just had a pretty good run in the last last ten more than more than ten years now. So for a long mm. time, it's been a topic that people they get excited about, love hearing behavioural economic stories. So there's nothing more popular than a Dan Ariely TED talk. Um, now there's been several uh, Nobel Memorial Prizes in economics awarded to behavioural economists. So I think partly you know, the fact that it's under a bit of criticism now is comes from the fact that it was, you know, it actually has quite a way that it could, could fall sort of from, mm-hmm. from, the, from those lofty heights. There's this, you know, this, this promise of, of understanding human behavior of really changing government the corporate sector. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that is just the fact, you know, it's now some of those lofty expectations just aren't being met in the way that, that, that people might, might've hoped. And, and, it's, and it's crumbled in, in, in several directions. So, the replication crisis is one where partly this is the foundation that, that we climbed up upon wasn't as stable as, mm-hmm. as we thought. So by that replication crisis is in many, you know, many experiments that, that form the fodder of behavioral economics presentations and the like, simply, you know, when, when, when people go and conduct that same experiment again, that the, um, the, the result doesn't come through. So the effect that was found the first time, does, doesn't occur, and so so, so the fact that, that you know that, that foundation just isn't as solid as, as hoped really, um, I, I I I guess means that a lot a lot, lot of what we're saying here's how we can change behaviour. Those, those interventions just don't have any any validity. I should say that like although there's a lot of experimental results that have um, crumbled, they're mm-hmm. probably not you know, a lot of them aren't the central ones that say behavioural econo- economists are applying in practice. So so yep. despite that replication crisis. I think a lot of the, the practical measures probably, um, you know, it's still the experimental results still stand. So you go back to the, the classic experiments of Kahneman and Tversky that found mm-hmm. the foundation of behavioral economics, and most of their results replicate. So, so, so a lot of it's okay. But then, but then you come to the next problem, which is going, going, okay, let's take this really interesting experimental result and let's go and apply it in the real world. Let's take it from a place where we've got a bunch of probably psychology undergraduate students and then see if that works more broadly. And, and that's, to me, the heart of the, the, the bigger failure is that when you find some, you know, some nice real, you know, like, likely real effect um, in someone's decision-making, but you place it in a context where they're considering many more factors, you know, it's, it's actually a very complicated decision they're making. To go, here is the effect of my little intervention um, is, is really tough. And in fact, you know, because of the fact that there's so many other other factors out there, you know, it could just result in 
there, there being nothing at all. And the example I, I, I think about a lot is you know, the idea of when we talk about people are overconfident. So overconfidence is as poorly used. So, and, and so a CEO will make a merger, the merger will go under and uh, it will be a disaster and say, oh, they were overconfident. But then, of course, we'll also say people are loss averse. So when he doesn't do the merger, they go, oh, they were too loss averse to do the merger. I mean, you just end up with this you know, contrasting competing effects. So when you're thinking about what, you know, should this CEO make a merger or not? Well, are they, are they going to be too overconfident or are they going to be too loss averse? Or what is the particular behavioral um, factor that will be influencing in that decision? So to tease it apart and go, well, this is the one that dominates and this is the this is what's going on, I, I think it's really hard. And then that hits sort of on a, I think a related point where we're ultimately, you know, a lot of these decisions, it's just actually not clear what the right decision is. Um, <laughs> probably even before, even after the fact, because when you're in an uncertain world, a lot of decisions that, you know, probably quite good, you know, end up poorly. Like, you know, a poker player can play, play the odds beautifully and, and still lose. But then to, you know, but also just to look at someone's decision and to say, that decision is an error, that decision is wrong, is, is a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, Partly, yeah, that uncertainty in it, and then also the fact, you know, do we even know what this person is trying to do? Like, what's what's their what's their mm -hmm. objective? So you put all these things together, and and it just makes, you know, actually, you, you look at it all and you go, well, you know, we've got some experimental results, not great. Those are those that are good. It's really hard to apply them, and then you know, when we try and assess the quality of someone's decisions we find it really hard to tease out, you know, which factor is affecting the decision and whether it's even a good decision. Mm. It makes, you know, it sets up to, you know, a, a challenge that's a long way from those lofty promises that the behavioral economists historically made. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's true in a lot of fields in life, isn't it? The kind of overly simplistic binary thinking and, and reality, you know, life and the world is is far more complex and therefore it's very hard to apply these models and expect you know perfect outcomes every time whereas obviously within a, a lab you know you can replicate these conditions um which which aren't reflective of of what goes on outside of the lab um so yeah i mean i think it it's not just behavioral economics perhaps that comes under that sort of criticism but yeah no i, I agree and i mean do you think it's it's a, a case where it's so bad that no one takes it seriously anymore or, or do you just think it's come down you know a, a notch or two from its lofty heights as you said oh I, I, yeah, i'd say the behavioral economics fans are still in the vast majority uh yeah, yeah. In, some, in some ways the critique is a, a small but growing niche of people who are saying you know there's something that we need to pay pay attention to here so there's some fairly you know high profile um, people among among those who are making the critiques so nassim taleb sort of is, i suppose is one of the Better known and ones who's getting a, a lot of traction, but but I gen, generally, and this is my own experience, sort of practically, talk start talking about behavioral economics and the value of it. And people are still they're, they're excited, they want to be involved, they think it's a sexy. They pro probably haven't heard about the replication crisis or the fact that there there might be other problems. So so in, to me, it's so, some ways that the, the critique is strongest just among those you know the practitioners, the active academics, like where we're hearing it, thinking about it, and. It's probably going to be a while before maybe that that it's the mainstream the broader world yeah no I think, I think that's probably true and and then I, I guess aside from your expertise in behavioral economics the other area you're, you're kind of interested in and, and do a lot of work in is um, evolutionary biology and um, I mean it's a topic I I know very little about and 
but but I know it's it's interesting and it sounds interesting and um I was wondering if if you know you were to kind of explain it to somebody like me or a child what it what it means in kind of layman's terms and I guess why it's so interesting why it's important to understand more about it sure well I, I suppose you think about well ultimately you know the behavioral sciences, behavioral economics, they're ultimately around human, human behavior. Mm. Um, and the thing is humans are, we're, we're evolved animals and to understand, I think animal behavior, you need to understand at least in part that evolutionary history. And so that's, that's, that's really, really the heart of it. And, and this, you know, for me, the, the idea of bringing evolutionary biology in, into, into the, you know, this examination of human behavior and, you know, there's a whole field of evolutionary, evolutionary psychology where, where they do this, but it's actually mm. just to start to add some, some you know, theoretical structure and some new hypotheses as to, as to why people do the things um, that they do. And when we think about, 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 you know, the evolutionary foundations of our decision making, it's probably worth thinking about two different parts to it. So one, obviously, you know, evolution shapes for an ultimate objective of, you know, survival and reproduction. Uh, so, so, on the one, so, so that, that's one way of thinking about it. It's going, okay, is this behavior likely to, you know, help someone survive, um, lead to them to have reproductive success? Yep. Um, but then, of course, you know, we don't go, well, I certainly don't, go wander, wandering around thinking, how can I maximize my reproductive potential? Right? Um, so instead, what we, ha- we actually have, like, when we, you know, what, what you call more, more proximate objectives that tend to lead to that. So, we have a taste for fatty food and, and sugar. So, so we, we enjoy that because of course that in, you know, in our environment in which we involve tend to yep. lead to survival. Um, we like to signal um, status um, because that you know, has historically tended to, to lead to, to more reproductive partners and things like that. And so, 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 but by thinking through it in this way, you can start to go, well, actually, well, what are some of the, the um, you know some of the behaviors we might expect people to to exhibit and you know, and actually, you know it gives a foundation to examine them and, and look at them mm. and also for me and, and one of the things I find most interesting about those is also when we're assessing someone's decisions it just gives another an alternative framework to think about what it is they're actually trying to do and and, and when we assess that the value of that decision so if we see a bunch of you know, young kids who instead of you know, getting a good minimum wage job at McDonald's or whatever it might be, who are instead hanging on a corner, um, dealing drugs and so on. To actually, you know, one, one way to look at it is go, these people, you know, they're, they're clearly not maximizing their future income. Um, mm. but, but of course, it's got, like, that's kind of obvious, right? But, but yeah. at the same time, like, like, but it's a lens, you know, you know an evolutionary lens, we're going, well, actually, well, what is it around, you know, do they have objectives around status, around, you know, it may be obvious, around attracting girls, whatever anything like that but this puts a, a different emphasis on where we might be looking for, for their motivations because of course you start to apply lenses such that and you go hang on that's actually not such a, an irrational um action it, you see such some logic to, to what you're doing yeah so i mean i guess that the field helps in that sense doesn't it to sort of try and examine those things that maybe on the surface seem irrational behavior but yeah. once you understand it in the context of evolution maybe it it does make more sense yeah. um yeah indeed but so there's this like to, to give one this illustrative example it's this paper from um 1979 um so um paul rubin and i think another um chris paul the third or something i'm probably got those names wrong but anyway really interesting economics paper but they they sort of took like made this really toy, this toy model and they just went let's imagine there's a certain minimum threshold of income you need to attract a mate 
And then of course, I, like, you, know, you, you ask questions about what about someone who's just below that income and just above that income? So someone's just, who's just below that income, you know, they could actually, you know, because they can't attract a mate, they could take some really big risks that would appear quite crazy just to get above that threshold. So you look at it, you think about it from perspective of income and these people are, you know, they, they're very risk seeking. You're going, like, what are you doing? This is easy. And yet from the perspective of, um, you know, their ultimate objective, say, of attracting a mate, it's, um, it's an absolutely necessary and logical step they have to do. And the flip side is you think of someone who's got just enough, you know, they're, they're hanging on by their teeth because <laughs> they've got enough income to attract, attract the mate. They're going to be very risk averse because they fall below that threshold and, right. and suddenly they're on their, on, on their own. And so they could be rejecting opportunities, you know, that, that on net have, could be quite valuable, but because they're a bit risky, they just go, I'm not going there. Um, I'm above, above that. And so it's obviously a, like, an, like a very simple toy model, but it just sort of hits in that point where you could have, you know, people exhibiting quite different, um, you know, attitudes to risk um in their decision making and so an economist or behavioral economist you could be a bit confused and you think of that from this evolutionary lens and you go actually that's just perfectly logical behavior given we're thinking about your objective in terms of you know attracting a mate as opposed to earning yep. more income yeah i love i love that story yeah i mean i think the kind of risk and perception of risk is such a fascinating area and it's kind of a um, i've read a lot about how that you know kind of in in the world we live in now in most cases you know all of our needs are pretty much catered for um and therefore you know there is an argument that a lot of us should be taking more risks you know and things like starting new businesses or whatever it is because in reality you know pretty much everything that we need is already more than catered for but as you say it makes sense when we're fearing losing that that status um by taking those risks even though in reality, probably taking those risks is is safe. Um, yeah. So it's, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I think that you're also hinting at one of the big ideas that comes out of this evolutionary thinking is, is this idea of mismatch. So you know we evolved in an environment very different from the one today. So it was it was an environment of scarce calories, um, very hard to save and invest, um, more dangerous, uh, more day to day. And, and, and that, that's the mental toolkit that we've got. And so one of the, the questions to ask is, yeah, in today's environment where suddenly you know, calories aren't scarce and the like, are, are we still utilizing you know, decision-making tools and heuristics that, that, that worked well then, but don't work so well now? So, 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 so this idea that you know, there might be an evolutionary explanation doesn't say that's the best decision now, but it helps you understand, okay, here's possibly why these people aren't making you know, a decision as, as good as it could be. Um, it's make, why they're making the decision they are and other ways we can maybe help them to make a different one that could make them better off. Absolutely. And I guess the flip side to that as well is that, you know, a lot of companies make money from exploiting those mismatches too, like, you know, putting lots of salt and sugar in our food and, um, you know, creating apps or you know websites that are addictive um so yeah i guess it works both ways um but indeed, indeed. but it, it, yeah having that being able to think about it at a sort of meta level i guess is quite quite powerful but that's easier said than done um indeed well on, on that meta level i also find the evolutionary framework is it like it's just one of the other filters i apply to experimental results that i see out there in the literature like just as a like as a little heuristic when so when someone says, oh, here's this cool new experimental result um, where we, you know, the classic, the Florida effect, we, we showed, we got people to do word puzzles, which had words that relate to old people and they walked slower out of the room. Yeah. So that experiment has been shot down, but 
you think about that and you go, well, you know, can, can I think of an evolutionary sort of, you know, framework or ex explanation for that particular experimental, experimental result? And you just go, well, there's actually, there's nothing there that I can see. And so it just sort of goes, okay, there's another, maybe another reason to think, <laughs> question whether it's real, whereas others just might, you go, actually, that's, you know, I actually really see that as, you know, they've generated, you know, this, this particular, you know, this particular you know level of cooperation when we invoke this conflict you can see you know you can actually see an evolution story like it is storytelling but it's still like, like at that point but it's but it's still like by placing it into the framework just you know, gives another another hook to when you go okay well what would i do to try and test this further and understand if this is if this is real yeah so i mean it makes complete sense that then those two fields are kind of quite closely related behavioral economics and evolutionary biology and how you can use one to maybe kind of examine or think about the other in more detail. Because um, behavioral economics is like, well, I know, I know that crying out for a unifying framework is, pro is probably too strong, but the more, I think behavioral economics would just benefit from a lot more well-grounded theory because I think so many of the experiments that are, that have popped up, that have failed to replicate, I kind of, they're almost like little micro sort of ideas people make up on the spot. There's no you know, broader framework about, you know, going, okay, we think people generally behave like this, yeah. Um, you know, might be the evolutionary framework. Here's some ideas we'll do to test that. Let's test them. Instead, they go, well, let's just see if what happens if we put blue jelly beans in their cup and, you know, are they going to then be more aggressive? Like, like what might be, you know, to, to guide their experimental act activities. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then, yeah, just when you were talking there, there was one point you talked about, touched on very briefly, which I sort of read a little bit about, but um, don't sort of understand fully probably is this, this idea of, signaling and you know why we often do things even if it's costly um and i was wondering if, yeah, if you could explain a little bit more what what signaling signaling is um and and why we do it even if it is sometimes costly yeah just like you know we do actually do it because it's costly but, I, but i'll get to that so 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 quite so quite often we you know we we have you know we, we, we have traits that we want others to know about so so if I go back to, you know, a little toy example, we're trying to attract a mate and, you know, we, you know, we believe there's the characteristics that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's wealth, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's health, whatever it might be. And, and signaling is just simply the way in which we try and demonstrate those, those characteristics. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the core ideas in, in signaling is you know, the idea of cost, costly signaling or something, you know, sometimes referred to as, as handicap where, you know, Signals, to be honest, need, you know, to, to, let me take a step back. Um, when we're signaling, of course, you know, you know, what would be awesome if you didn't have the wealth, you could pretend to not, to not have the wealth and just go, you know, I mean, pretend to have the wealth when you don't have it. You can go, look, I'm, I'm super rich. You go rent a Ferrari, pretend it's yours, that kind of thing. But, but an actual, but the thing is, because of this faking, those who are receiving the signals are always going, well, can I really trust it? One of the best ways to have a signal to be trustworthy is just if it's hugely costly, because those right. who can't incur the cost right. um, uh, um, won't, won't fake it. So to think about, you know, I guess the idea of conspicuous consumption. Mm -hmm. So someone who goes into a bar and just suddenly blows a hundred grand over the bar, shouting the whole, whole bar and so on. And with not a lot of cash simply, you know, isn't going to be able to replicate that without severely harming them, themselves financially. Yeah. And so they've done something that's hugely costly, but the reason why it's a good signal of their wealth is because of that cost. They go, they're going like no, only a truly rich guy could just burn the hundred k over. Uh, and so you see that 
you, know, you see this more broadly through the animal kingdom, which is what sort of a lot of the idea there is comes from research with, with other animals and applying it to humans. But it's this idea that it will, will do things that you know, take real cost. And it's only that, that cost that, that, that generates the, well, that generates the reliability of it. It's just like, like one of the, it was actually sort of, you know, this idea emerged in both economics and biology. So um, the biologists sort of for, for, for decades sort of argued about whether this was true, like whether a handicap could really be a reliable, sig um, reliable signal. And they sort of resolved it in the early nineties. Um, that was the case, but there was also a, um, an, an, an economist, Michael Spence, who looked at um, the idea of, you know, how could you signal quality to an employer? Mm -hmm. And looked at the idea of going, well, think about education. So if you're truly smart and hardworking, um, then education is going to impose a much lower cost on you than um, someone who, who's not. So mm -hmm. education works as a signal by the fact that, you know, it's only those who are truly, you know, who, who truly have that ability to crack, crank through it and not get, get wiped out. You know, they can, they can do it and still have some time left over for, for the rest of their life. It's only, only those who um, are then going to make it through. So then employers can look at it and go, okay, the mere fact you did that education, it's not, the, not what you learned. The fact you survived, it indicates your, um, the fact you've got this intelligence, hardworking, whatever it is you believe education requires. I can, I can hire you because, it's, because that education is a reliable signal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I guess the, the one question that springs to mind is, you know, you do hear those stories of those extremely wealthy people who, you know, live extremely modestly. They drive a, you know, 10 year old car that's beaten up and they travel premium economy and all of these sort of things. So why, why is it that signaling isn't important for them versus the guy blowing the hundred K in the bar? Yeah. Although I think, you know, someone like Warren Buffett in his little, you know, modest house in, <laughs> like I, I, th I think there's other other evidence of his wealth, so that's maybe maybe, maybe one, or maybe maybe it's a you know maybe it's the ultimate signal. I, I I'm so rich and so confident of it that I can drive a beaten up <laughs> old, old car. Like it's only it's only someone it's only someone who's a true billionaire who can just dress like an absolute bum and still be treated like royalty. Yeah, maybe uh, yeah. But but as with all these things, I, I get what they are is that yeah, there's going to be heaps of people who who simply choose different actions who, who perhaps don't, don't, don't conform, don't, you know, don't conform. You're always going to, for any, for any behavior, there's always going to be, I guess, exceptions, but I'd say that, you know, most, you know, billionaires are engaging in, in, in expenditure that probably you and I, um, mm. billionaire, uh, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't replicate. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true. I mean, there's for every rule, there's an exception, right. Um, mm. And then I think, yeah, to sort of, finish off other than to say you know thanks um for, for for speaking with us today i was wondering you know for people that wanting to kind of get into either behavioral economics or even evolutionary biology are, are there any kind of books you would recommend as a great place to kind of start and and to get a good understanding of of those fields sure okay so, so, so let, let me go go three one from each and then one that's slightly unifying title um so, so first, we recommend um, "Spent" by Jeffrey Miller. So, so Jeff is an evolutionary uh, evolutionary psychologist, and and "Spent" is basically about you know, how our evolved psyche you know, works in, in in the world of modern consumerism. And for me, it's a, just a really interesting book because it, it talks a bit about you know it touches a bit on that mismatch earlier. So it walks through a lot of 
issues such as signaling and why we consume. Mm-hmm. But it also has this really, I guess, important point or deep point to me that we're actually not very good at signaling our best traits in a modern um, consumerist society. And so you think about, you know, an iPhone, say, you know, maybe we feel this you know, moment where it's going to think, we think about, oh, wow, everyone's going to see my brand new iPhone. And then of course, <laughs> you know, you look, look across and there's, you know, there's grandma with an iPhone as well. But there's, like, if, if, we, if we're really trying to demonstrate our intelligence, our taste, whatever it would be, there's probably better ways of going about it in, um, than, than we do. So that, that's my first book recommendation. And plus, plus he's just a, you know, a really entertaining writer. So, so it's a great book. On the behavioral economics side, I'm actually sort of, I guess, throw one up there from, from the, the, the side of the critiques. Um, so by Bob Sudkin, um, a book of um, A Community of Advantage. Okay. And so, so Bob's actually, I suppose, also one of the original um, behavioral economists. So he was writing behavioral economics papers, sort of, I think probably, you know, late 70s. In some ways, you know, in terms of you know, time, um, probably, you know, similar time to to Richard Thaler, just because you know, in, in the UK, probably didn't get as much attention as, <laughs> as, as some of those who are, who are better known. But the community, community of advantage has a lot of interesting um, ideas, but one of the big ones being is just like, how do you really understand um, what someone's preferences are? Mm-hmm. And his argument is, is they're going, you know, many of our preferences and many of the things that we want, like they don't actually exist until, you know, the moment of the decision. And so right. the idea of saying, you know, the idea of that, that behavioral economists can help us realize our true preferences, he basically argues, well, that's kind of, you know, it's impossible because our true preferences don't really exist. Um, and and, and, and to, in any attempt to define them is just going to run into endless, endless dramas. So, so, so I think it's, it's just a, a really interesting book for sort of understanding probably some of almost the philosophy of behavioral economics and what they're trying to do. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I like the sound of both those. <laughs> Yeah, and so let so me throw a left field. Uh, well, not that left field. The book is pretty well, pretty well known. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I've just forgot what book, <laughs> what title of the book. I'm drawing a complete blank. Uh, that always happens. It's so annoying, and then it comes oh, back to you. No, no, it's, it's come come back to me. Um, so, so there's a book um, by David Epstein, the Sports Gene, and so. So what happens so often in, you know, when you throw, start throwing evolutionary biology um, into discussions of behavior, you inevitably get dragged into this sort of debate of nature via, nature versus nurture or, you know, na- you know in- inheritance versus environment, what causes behavior. And mm-hmm. I just think the sports gene to me is just the best exploration of that topic I've ever read. Now, and the f- funny thing is, so, so I, I find sports completely boring um, I can't, you know, I, I just can't believe people spend hours watching sort of grown men and women put balls in hoops or nets or whatever it is. Yet, despite that, like, you know, this, this the discussion of sports gene and as to how some of these athletes sort of went from where they were to, to being world-class athletes. And, and, you know, it's like the difference is some of them through hard work, some of them through natural talent and the combination of the two, like some of the, just the inherent biological features of say a great marathoner or a great mm. swimmer been a great baseballer with you know great baseballer has on you know vision well 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 um well superior to 2020 mm. Mm. Um, but really bringing that bringing these two concepts together and, and the sports gene just you know it's the best best uh attack at that problem that, I, that i've ever read oh that sounds good yeah no i think i read one of his books he had a book called range i think it range, was yeah. recently there i enjoyed that um but yeah now i'm going to head to amazon after this and 
and buy all of those. Um, so thanks for the recommendations. And yeah, thank you so much for, for your time today. And it's been great talking to you. And um, thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of the 42 Courses podcast. We'll be back soon with more interviews with some of the world's greatest minds. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at 42 Courses or check out our website, 42courses.com, for information on all the courses we offer. Have a great week.